As we uh, move through this lesson this morning, you might find yourself thinking, boy, he likes to talk about these particular passages a lot. Um, You're right. I do. I think these are very important passages. The passage we started out with this morning from Jeremiah 29, we're going to look some, uh, at some stories from the book of Daniel. And we're going to end up in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I think these scriptures are important for us today. There's a number of passages that are incredibly powerful and effective uh, as mirrors. That, that when you look into the Word of God, what you see is your reflection in a way that God needs you to see it. Um, you know, there's an old fairy tale, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Uh, I think there's times when we need to ask the Word of God, who's the most faithful of us all? And we look into the Word of God and we allow that mirror to reflect back to us something that we need to see about our current condition so that we can understand about where God wants us to get. Uh, and there's other passages, and, and some that are this and both, that are not only a mirror for us, but are a lens that help us to better understand the world that we live in. Uh, that they are a lens that when you look through that scripture at the world where, where you find yourself in this and every moment, that it helps you to better understand the world that you live in through God's eyes and through God's word. And so the passages we're going to be looking at today, if you've heard me teach on them before and you thought, yeah, I've heard this, uh, it's not because I think you need more of the text. It's because these passages function as a mirror for ourselves and a lens for the world that helps us to better understand what God's up to. And what we ought to be up to. And so we're going to hold these scriptures up today. And we're going to use them to look at the world that we live in. Uh, I don't know if you guys are news junkies. uh, If you watch a lot of news. I used to watch a lot of news. I still read a lot of news. um, But I'll tell you what I haven't seen in a long, long time. Is a news anchor sit down at their desk. I want to welcome you all to tonight's news. Good news today. Wouldn't that be nice? Good news today. I think we would just be shocked. Wouldn't you just yell at, you yell at your kids and everyone else, hey, be quiet, be quiet. They found good news somewhere. We need to hear this. We haven't heard good news in a long, long time. Well, today, here Sunday morning, We've got good news. We've got good news. But if you're going to turn on the news tonight, you're not going to get much good news. Because we're living in tough times. And that's real. And I'm not just picking on the news. We're going through a tough year. We're going through a tough year. And when it comes to tough times, we need a tough faith to get us through. Uh, There's some people who when, when times get tough, they just kind of check their faith and they say, I'll try and come back to that when things get easier and better and more comfortable. That's not the kind of faith that God calls us to have during tough times. Uh, It's not the kind of faith that is going to give us the, the life that we need while experiencing difficult moments. God offers us more and we should offer him more. And so we've spent the last several weeks, and and this will kind of be the week that we wrap it up, talking about tough faith for tough times. And and as we think about what that means, we've looked at the criminal on the cross who who had the incredible ability to look not at his difficult circumstances that were temporary and and short-term. He wasn't going to be on that cross for long, but he had the faith to realize that the guy that was hanging next to him was an eternal kind of king. 
and that the kingdom that this guy was bringing was death-proof and imminent. And so while hanging on a cross next to him, he, he has the incredible faith to look over to him and say, when you come into your kingdom, in spite of all evidence to the contrary at this moment, I believe that you will come into your kingdom, and when you do, can I please be there? And Jesus says, yes, today. Yes, today you will be with me in paradise. Incredible faith, focusing on the eternal nature of the kingdom of God and not the temporary nature of our tough times gets us through uh, years like this one. Last week we talked about how the prayers of lament, the psalms that cry out to God and say, God, we believe that you're in charge, we believe that you love us, and if you're in charge and you love us, you need to know that things stink right now, and we would like them to get better quick and better in the future. We're not okay with suffering this long. If you are our Father and you are in charge and you love us, we put this at your feet and incredibly, over and over again, these lament psalms that cry out to God end in statements of praise and confidence and faith. And they do so because there is this incredible ability when you're honest with God about being in the pit to remember the times before that you were suffering and God delivered you from the pit to the peak. And if God got you out of that mess, that year that was worse than this one, then can't he get you out of this one too? Yeah, he can. And so suddenly our honest, heartfelt prayers of, of grief and sorrow and frustration start to remind us of the times we prayed those prayers before and that God was faithful before, and we suddenly begin to get confident that God's going to be faithful again. Those prayers teach us how to pray, how to praise, how to be connected to God in all seasons of life. This week, what we're going to look at, and, and, and I couldn't help but come into the, these passages. Last week, we looked at, uh, at the psalm where Israel cried out as they were being taken into exile in Babylon. How can we sing the songs of Zion while we sit by the rivers of Babylon? How can we sing to God? When his house just got torn down and his people are being hauled away from the land that he's promised, how can we sing? And they hung their harps on the poplar trees and they said, we will never forget Jerusalem and God's promises, but man, it's hard to sing right now. And they didn't get immediately delivered. It would be great if God swooped down in that moment and he heard their prayers and he said, hey guys, I hope you learned your lesson. Let's head back to Jerusalem. Let's head back to the promised land. I'll wipe out Babylon. Uh, let's get you where you want to be. But they don't get instantaneous relief. They get taken into exile, into Babylon. And it's one of the most difficult seasons of understanding their faith in all of Israel's history. While the Bible has been, uh, the, the books of the Bible have been being written at that point for hundreds and thousands of years, it's really during exile and in the years that follow exile when Cyrus sends them back to Jerusalem and says, I want you to write your stories and collect your religious books and your history books, that the Old Testament really begins to take the shape that we have it in today is out of exile. And it's no surprise that so much of how the Old Testament is structured is trying to answer the question, is God faithful? Are we faithful? What does it mean to be his people in this and every place? That the questions that exile cause you to ask are being asked all through Scripture. 
Babylon is a crisis for God's people. And I have to ask, God, how do we live in a crisis like this one? How can we live when we aren't where we want to be? We aren't living how we want to be living. Things aren't the way we want them to be. We're in a foreign land. We're among strangers. We are suffering. We don't like it. Make things better. How do we live here? And they cry out to God and they ask God, God, how do we live in a time and a place like this? And it's a question that many of us have asked this year. God, how can we live in a place and a time like this? And God answers Israel's question. He sends a letter through the prophet uh, Jeremiah to the people. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Which, by the way, little thing right there. Uh, Israel keeps saying, how God did you allow Babylon to take us into exile and into captivity? God starts his letter and says, they're not strong enough to take my people into captivity. I took you. I brought you to this place until you learn to be faithful to me. I will not be faithful in in action to you. I'm there for you. I'm still here for you. I'm still in charge. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. We expect something. We want something like, don't even unpack your bags. You're going to go home soon. Don't settle down here. It's just for the weekend. We expect him to say, hey, don't get happy here. Be miserable. Wear sackcloth and ash. Complain all the time. Be mad at everyone about how much they, some people like Babylon. Go get mad at them. Uh, and, and if you like Babylon and you're kind of going, this isn't that bad here, maybe you need to go get mad at the other people that are, that are so filled with nostalgia that they just want to get back to Jerusalem. And there's all this conflict and there's all this anxiety and there's all this, what do we do? And, and maybe some of you want to form a rebellion and, and maybe someone wants to do a hunger strike. I'm not eating till we go home. Those all seem like the kind of responses that we as humans would want in a moment like this. And God's advice is this. Hey, build a house. Get married. Have kids. Plant a garden. Eat what the garden produces. Just keep living. You want to know how you survive tough times, God says? Here's what you do. 
Plant your feet. Take a step. Take another step. Keep walking in the direction that your feet are pointed. Don't give up. Don't stop living. Don't surrender to the, the difficulty of this moment. And he continues in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God says, listen, you need to just learn to live in this place and keep putting one foot in front of the other one. Get married, have kids, get them married and have kids, which also communicates, hey, get used to this suffering for a little while. It's going to be more than a weekend. Your kids are going to get married here. Uh-oh, that wasn't the plan. And they would kind of go and say, but we've got other prophets that have told us this. And God says, yeah, do you know why they told you that? Because you told them to tell you that. You're hearing exactly what you want to hear. What, what God says is suffering happens sometimes, and it doesn't always get removed in a weekend. Sometimes you're going to sit in that suffering for a while, but don't think that I'm not faithful. I will hear your prayers when you call out to me with all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart, I will not abandon you. I am still coming back. I am still the God that, that when you seek me, I'm already seeking you and waiting for you to come back to me. I will be there. I'm already there. I went with you into exile. I carried you there. I'm with you now waiting for you to be ready for me so that we can all go home together, but it's not that time yet. Keep living. God will keep coming for us. And so when we look at our own tough times that we go through today, the first thing that you need to know is when you look around and you say, God, this isn't where I wanted to be, and I don't want to be in this time and in this place and with these people. The first thing you need to know is that God's first advice to people that are living in exile and going through tough times is keep living. Find reasons for joy in the midst of difficulty. Keep doing what you need to do. Plant a garden and eat the produce. But it gets, of course, more complicated than that. To understand a little bit more of how it actually looks, we need to go into the book of Daniel, where Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four young men that are Israelites, are living in exile. And at the very beginning of the book, you get this story that almost is a little bit bizarre, understanding how difficult it is to be in exile, uh, but it introduces us to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Starting in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, 
handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. The king says, I want the best and the brightest from all the nations I've captured to be my servants. And when someone comes into my court, I want them to see the most wise and good-looking, intelligent, well-educated people that I've captured serving me. And to go, wow, look at this king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What greatness he must have to have these kinds of servants. And it would be easy if you're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come into this situation and say, we're living under the roof of the Babylonian king. We're learning his language. We're studying his books. We're learning his history. We're, we're in this place. We're eating his food, wearing the clothes that he assigns. You're essentially Babylonians now. And you could easily say, forget the ways of the old world. We're living in the palace. We're going to start living in the ways of the new world. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, gave them Babylonian names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official still told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with the food, with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. That sounds terrible to me. <laughs> to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Ten times better than all of those other magicians and enchanters and diviners and, and the people that were advising Nebuchadnezzar, these four Hebrew boys from Judah were greater than all the others by ten times when it came to matters of wisdom and advice and leadership. But not only that, they, they make this commitment to eat the food that God wants them to eat, not the food that the king wants them to eat. 
But you also get the idea that this is all being done kind of in secret, just under the permission of this one official who has found favor on these boys, these young men. When you're living in Babylon, the first thing you have to do is just keep living, keep putting one foot in front of the other one. But Daniel starts out and gives you a letter that says, yeah, but while you're there, don't start to live like them. Don't start to conform to the Babylonians' way of life in such a way that you lose your identity as the people of God. Be different on purpose. And be different when no one's looking and be different when it doesn't matter. In the matter of something as small as food. And it doesn't even tell us why exactly the food was problematic. But it's clear they've got new names, new clothes. They've got new jobs. They've got a new boss, a new king. And all of this. And Daniel says, listen, we can't completely give ourselves over to your way of life. We've got to continue to honor God's way of doing things. We live in a world today that doesn't hold Christian values as the core guiding guidepost of how we make decisions as a country or as a people anymore. We live in a world today that, that has been decentered in so many ways. The things that are uh, on media and television, the things that are talked about in the world that we live in today are so radically different from the things that were acceptable 50 years ago. And it would be easy for us to just do as the Babylonians do, to do as the world does. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give us this example of saying, yeah, we're going to keep living while we're in Babylon. We're not just going to shut down, but we're not going to do everything their way. We're going to do the important things God's way. And they start this with a small thing, the matter of food. The matter of whether or not they'll eat uh, the king's royal food or God's food that, that is right for them. And we've got to ask today, are we willing to do the difficult work of being intentionally different from the world? Are we willing to conform our lives to Christ rather than conforming them to the values of our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that are on TV and the media and the world that tells us this is how you should behave? And I don't just mean in terms of morality. Morality is certainly important. But when you ask yourself, how am I going to dress today, act today, speak today? What are the things I'm going to care the most about? What are the things I'm going to argue for? What are the things I'm willing to die for? Are those things determined by the world or are those things determined by Jesus Christ? We've got a problem in our world today that people are more willing to take a stand on their politics than on their faith. That, that when we're asked, uh, what do you care more about? Whether your candidate gets elected this year or whether more people choose to make King Jesus Lord of their life. Well, can you ask me again in December? No. It matters every single day. How do I determine? We've got questions of race and justice going on in our country today. Do I try and think more like the people that look like me and have my skin color and that sound like me in the way that they talk and that have gotten educated at the places where I got educated? Or do I conform myself more to Jesus Christ who tore down the dividing wall of hostility? Do I like to spend time with people who spend money like me? Because I don't have to be embarrassed about my wealth and they don't have to be jealous about my wealth and, and I don't have to worry about who's got what. And, and 
Or do I have the mindset of Jesus who says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's and realize that money doesn't matter as much as the people who use it and the people who need it? What are we conforming ourselves to? Because the book of Daniel demands that you know when no one is looking, are you conforming yourself to the world or are you conforming yourself to the cross? You can't do both. You have to choose. Who are you conforming yourself to, Christ or the crowds? And what we like about Daniel 1 is it's kind of this private story, like, ah, what I eat is my business and it doesn't affect my public image. They get to go before the king and still look great. They're 10 times better. So privately, they get to have faith and publicly, they get to conform, right? Well, that'd work if you only read Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is setting the stage for the great public displays that come later when some of these other jealous rulers that rule alongside Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't like being 90% worse than their wisdom. And they set a trap. They go to the king and they say, listen, we need you to make a law because Daniel prays in public in his window every day. And if you just make a law that anyone that prays to anyone other than you gets thrown uh, into the lion's den and becomes lion food, uh, we don't have a Daniel problem anymore. choice in that moment to say, you know what, as long as I'm praying in private and have my good Babylonian image in public, God's still going to be proud of me. But he doesn't do that. See, God was faithful when Daniel was faithful in the little things, and so now Daniel's going to be faithful in the big thing. And it becomes illegal to pray publicly to anyone other than the king, and Daniel says, fine, I completely understand, and he gets on his knees and he prays. And they throw him in with the lions. And because Daniel was faithful in this big public thing where he still lives a life with contrast at great expense to him, God's still faithful to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told by a king when the, the instruments play, everyone in the kingdom has to bow down to an idol that I've made. Or they get thrown in the fire and they said, great. And he's going to bow down to me? Nope. The music plays, the people bow down, and there's three guys standing there in the midst of a sea of people that are on their hands and knees looking around going, well, whether God is faithful to us or not, whether God saves us or not, we will not stop being faithful to our God. We will not conform to a nation of kneeling people to a false God when we know the real God has been faithful to us in the past and is faithful to us in the present. And whether he saves us or not doesn't mean that God's not faithful to us in the future. We will not stop living with public, intentional contrast. We conform ourselves to God's way and not the world's way. And we will not change. We will not surrender. We bow to no one except God. That's pretty convicting. Our desire to keep our faith private and our conformity to the world public doesn't hold much water when you read Daniel. So when you're in Babylon, you got to keep living, but you can't become Babylonian. When you're living in the world, you've got to just keep living, but you cannot conform yourself to the world. You have to continue to conform yourself to Jesus Christ and His cross. So when Peter is writing his letter to the Christians that are scattered among the nations and who are beginning to experience persecution and other challenges, he writes to them and he says this, 
Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Do you live in a world with different values than you, with different clothes than you, that talks differently than you, that, has, uh, that conforms itself to what Rome wants and to what the Sanhedrin wants and what the Jewish teachers want? Yes. Does it make you feel like a foreigner in an exile? Yes. Do you walk around in 2020 in Oklahoma this year going, man, I feel like I'm living in someone else's world and in someone else's time. What is going on right now? You feel like a foreigner in an exile in your own town. That's who Peter writes to. He says, but even though you feel like a foreigner, don't start trying to fit in with the world. Don't choose sinful desires as your way to say, well, I guess we're going to live like the Babylonians do, as the Romans do, as the pagans do. I've got to fit in. I've got to be among them. I've got to live their way if I'm living in their place. No, as foreigners and exiles, stay different. Stay set apart. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. We don't like at all this middle way. We don't like this way of living good lives among the pagans. We have two approaches that we would rather do. We would rather either live really good lives away from them, Really good lives sheltered in our homes and in our churches and in our bubbles. We've got a world that makes it really easy to stay bubbled right now. And you can go build your Christian fortress and you can say, only people like me inside of my Christian fortress. If you're not a Jesus person, you stay out there and I'll stay in here and you won't tempt me and I won't make you feel guilty and we'll all be fine. Peter is, no, you've got to live such good lives among them. Among them? Yeah. Can I just live like them among them? No, such good lives that they look at you and go, man, I don't like who you are or what you believe, but man, I believe that you believe it. I believe that you're authentic. I believe that your faith is real. It's not my faith. I don't like what you're doing. I want to smear you in what you believe, but I can't because you're living such actively good lives in my midst. And so we have to live in the world. We have to live in Babylon and keep living and getting married and having kids and letting them getting married and planting a garden and its produce and let the Babylonians, the pagans of the world, see us and go, man, they are faithful in the midst of tough times. I've got to to take note of that. And the other thing we want to do is the other extreme is not just living such good lives among them, It's that we live in their midst and we're just hostile. We're just jerks for Jesus. We're going to use the tools of Satan, the tools of evil, anger, rage, insults, sarcasm, mockery, division, prejudice. We're going to take all those things and go use those in the midst of pagans and say, hey guys, here's what we think about you. All these things just wanted you to know, love Jesus. It probably shouldn't come as a surprise that not a lot of people today are getting converted by that. But Peter says, here's what I want you to do. When you're in tough times, you're not where you want to be. It's not the year that you wanted to be living in. Keep living. 
not as the world does, but as Jesus did and does today in you and through you. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and the world certainly accuses Christians of doing wrong. I read a book by an atheist a few years back that, that was saying that Christians who educate their children in the way of Jesus and in the way of Christianity are promoting such an awful type of belief in their children that they may not be worthy of being able to keep their children. Maybe we need to look into taking away the children of those who teach their children to be Christians. Because in his view, Christians are the bringers of violence, animosity, and hatred. There's people that say all kinds of awful things about Christians today. Though they accuse us of doing wrong, we silence their foolish talk with our good actions lived out among them, publicly with intentional contrast to the way of the world. That's the Jesus way. That's the kingdom in tough times and in tough places. We live in the world and among the world, but not like the world. We're being holy, which causes us to feel like strangers and aliens, but our lives should be done with such active goodness that it silences their foolish talk. And I say, you know what? I take it back. Christians are doing so much good. I don't believe what they believe, but man, I got to respect them. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? In tough times, we need tough faith. The criminal on the cross has faith in an eternal kingdom over temporary circumstances. In tough times, we need tough faith that allows us to put our difficult, suffering-filled times in front of God and at His feet while remembering that He's got us out of worse stuff before and He'll get us out of this too. That's how we praise Him in the tough days. And we need the ability to know that when we're living in a place and a time that wasn't our choice, that we do so faithfully by continuing to just live forward into that moment, but without conforming to the world around us, but by living with intentional contrast, conformed to the cross of Jesus Christ and not the crowd. That's tough faith for tough times. If you need today to commit to that kind of faith, that kind of a life, that kind of a king and kingdom, I invite you to do so as we stand and worship together. Lead me gently home, Father, lead me gently home. When life's toils are Say